If you have a Bible, we're going to start in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 is where we will uh, pick it up. Uh, This evening we have been walking through several of the characters that we find in the Bible, both male and female. I'm looking at different characters, and like I've told you in the past weeks, when we come to these, we're asking three questions. Who were they? Why do we know them? And what lessons do they teach us? So we're asking about why is this a character worthy? So when we come to God's Word, God's Word is there to be an example and a model and a a plumb line, if you will, for us to follow. But then there's also people, characters we have that have come before us that we've also seen their highs, their lows, their good, their bad, their success, their failures. And so we have an opportunity to learn from them, learn what they did, learn what they shouldn't have done, learn what they should have done. And so we have these examples in Scripture. And so there will be a time, if it hasn't already come, there will be a time in the future that you'll be tempted to think you're the only person that's ever dealt with this problem or you're the only person to ever be going through what you're going through. And yet, 99.999% of the time, if you would open your Bible up, there's somebody that's facing a similar situation to you that you can look at and see how did God interact and how did God deal with the person, how did the person respond to God, and how did the person um, show his faithfulness or their lack of faithfulness to God. So we've been looking at these characters, and so tonight we come to the character of Solomon. Um, So when we come to Solomon, we're going to ask these three questions. Why or who was he? Uh, Why do we know him? And what lessons does he teach us? So when we think about who was he, we're just talking about biographical information. So when it comes to the person of Solomon or King Solomon, what do we know? Factual data. Dad, mama, wife, brothers, sisters, kids, uncles, third cousin, twice removed on the mother's side. What do we know about who Solomon was? He was a man. All right, that's a that's a good start. That's a good start. All right. Anybody else know anything else? Two women were playing over one baby, so he was going to cut it in half. Okay. So there's a story, yeah, about how he. That's First Kings chapter three. Do we know what his dad's name was? David. David. Where did you know where we get that from? The Bible. Second Samuel. Second Samuel. Okay. <laughs> You're on it, Beth. You're on it. All right. Do we know what his mom's name was? Okay. Do you know where you get that from? Second Samuel. What? Same spot. Same spot. Okay. So if you're there in 2 Samuel chapter 12, you'll see in verse 24 and verse 25 introduces us to the mother and father. Now, when you get to 1 and 2 Samuel and 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Samuel, you'll see a parallel story unfolding in 1 Chronicles. You get to 1 and 2 Kings, you see a parallel story unfolding in 2 Chronicles. So if you're doing one of those Bible reading plans and you get through 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and then you get over to 1 Chronicles and you're like, I thought I already read this and I already thought this was done. And sometimes you get it from a different perspective and that is because you're reading the historical book. So first and second first and second Samuel, first and second Kings are both meant to be historical records. And then at the same time, first and second Chronicles is also historical records just from a different perspective. So first and second Samuel will line up with first Chronicles, and first and second Kings will line up with Second Chronicles. So some of these passages out of Second Samuel, you can go to First Chronicles and you'll see a parallel story. So if you're like, oh well Spence, it says it here, but 
it also says in the first chronicles, yes, you will see a parallel passage. You'll see a parallel story. So, Second Samuel chapter 12, verse 24, it shows us that David comforted his wife Bathsheba and went in and lay with her and she bore a son and he called his name Solomon. So that from right there you, we find out that Solomon, his dad's name's David. His mom's name is Bathsheba. Does he have any brothers and sisters that we know of? They had an older son before Solomon, yes. So this is where you can turn to your right. So you go to 2 Samuel, go past 1st and 2 Kings, and you get over to 1st Chronicles, and Chronicles usually gives us a lot of more of genealogical information. So you get over to 1st Chronicles chapter 3, and starting at verse 1 all the way down through verse 9, it gives us the descendants of David. So if you get you look down there or turn down there, you will see that it talks about a list, all of these sons that David has. And so if you go through there and count, you will find that David had ten sons. This is I'm down in chapter 3 and verse 9. It says all of these were David's sons besides the sons of the concubines and Tamar was their sister. So the only records we have is that he, that it gives us the names. So David had ten sons by his wives. And we talked last week about David and how he had multiple wives. Ten sons by his wives. The daughter Tamar, and then he had a whole slew of concubines that had kids by them. So if you think, well, what was the name of Solomon's brothers? You come and you get a record right here in 1 Chronicles chapter 3 about the brothers of Solomon. There's some more that aren't listed, but it does give you this account right there about his brothers and his sister. And so this is one of those things that you can take 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles, and you can line them up, and sometimes you can cross-reference between them. So talk about his father, talk about his mama, talk about uh, how do we find out about his brothers and sisters. Uh, was Solomon married? Bathsheba was his mom. So Solomon, his mom was Bathsheba. Was Solomon married? We never married, right? No, he had like 300 wives and different concubines. So 1 Kings, okay? So 1 Kings chapter 3. So 2 Samuel, um, you'll see the birth of Solomon in 2 Samuel, but 2 Samuel is still focused on David, right? So David dies at the end of 2 Samuel. 1 Kings is where it picks up with the reign of Solomon. And you go all the way through, uh, he dies in chapter 11 of 1 Kings. So the last part of 2 Samuel, all the way through 1 Kings uh, chapter 11 is where you see the life of Solomon. So in 1 Kings chapter 3, we get a reference to the wife of Solomon. Chapter 3, first one, Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house and the house of the Lord and the wall around Jerusalem. So we get an idea. Don't know if this is the first wife. Don't know if this is the second wife. But we do know that it mentions there in 1 Kings chapter 3 that he had, that he made an agreement with the Pharaoh of Egypt to marry his daughter. You keep going in your Bible to the right and you get to 1 Kings chapter 11 
And we get an idea that he had other wives. Beth talked about this. Uh, 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 3. He, talking about Solomon, he was a busy dude. He had how many wives? What does it say? 700 wives. Alright, he wasn't done. And then he had some concubines. How many concubines does it say yes? 300. So he had a thousand thousand Valentine gifts to give. A thousand birthdays to remember. A thousand anniversaries to keep tabs of. A thousand... <laughs> a thousand. <laughs> Just a thousand. So, yeah, in 1 Kings chapter 3, it talks about him marrying the Pharaoh. But then you get to 1 Kings chapter 11, and it says that he had more than just the daughter of Pharaoh. He had, he had another 999 women that were either his wife or his concubine. Now, I, I didn't find, maybe you'll find, I didn't find a particular place that it talked about the names of all of these women or as far as how many kids he had with all of these women. If you were to think back or look back to, uh, or look forward, I'm sorry, to Chronicles. 1 Chronicles 3, verse 1 through 9, talks about the descendants of David. And it talks about all the kids that David had, right? And then you get down to verse 10, and it said the son of Solomon was Rehoboam, and Abijah his son, Asaw his son, Jehoshaphat his son, Joram his son. And then it just talks about the descendants of Rehoboam, and then Rehoboam's son, and then then, uh, Rehoboam's grandson and great-grandson. So it just starts talking about the genealogy. Now here's what my mind thinks about. My mind thinks about if your name's Solomon, and you had a thousand wives, you probably had more than one son. But all I found so far is he had one son that's mentioned in Scripture, and his name was Rehoboam. And then it talks about who's Rehoboam's son, and then who's Rehoboam's grandson and great grandson, and it walks down through the gene- genealogy in there in First Chronicles three. So we know Solomon's mom, his dad. We know he was married at least to the daughter of Pharaoh of Egypt. That's a that's an important thing that's going to come up later. We realize he had other wives. He had brothers. He had sisters. He had a son, at least one son named Rehoboam. Probably more sons. I mean, just think about it. The man has one child with every woman. A thousand kids. Talk about taking over a town. I mean, you can imagine Solomon showing up in Wellston with a thousand wives. And they all, two generations later, there's 10,000 Solomons running around here. That's a lot. That's a big, that's a big house. That's a lot of beds. That is just crazy for me to think about having that many wives. Anything else that sticks out to you that you might have remembered or you might know about who Solomon was? Not necessarily know why we know him about factual data about who he was. Okay? So then let's ask the question, why do we know the name Solomon? Why is he a name that we care about? Or why is he a person that we should be aware of or familiar with from the Bible? Song of Solomon. Okay, Song of Solomon. Okay. Solomon's Temple. Uh, yeah. Solomon's Temple. Okay. Didn't he turn away from God at the end of his life? He did. Okay. For wisdom. Wisdom. Okay, so you get over to 1 Kings chapter 3. 
Um, he is now made the king of Israel. Which number of king is he? Anybody know which number of king he was? Three? Yeah, three. Okay. Yeah, he was the he was the third he was the he was the third king. So you had Saul was number one, David was number two, and then David's son Solomon was number three. I mean, I, I'm trying to help you all out. Okay, I'm trying trying to do my part. All right. So he's the third king of Israel, and this at this time Israel is united. You see this take place um, in 1 Kings as he ascends to the throne. A little bit of battle taking care of establishing his throne in 1 Kings chapter 2. But then you get down to 1 Kings chapter 3 and it says in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David's father. Only he sacrificed and made offerings of the high place, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was a great high place. Um, and then it says, at Gibeon, this is verse 5, At Gibeon the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and uprightness of heart towards you. You have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father. Although I'm a li- I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. And this is verse 9. Give your servant therefore an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this your great people so God comes to him in a dream right after his kingdom had been established God comes in a dream and says like genie okay going back to the genie in the bottle what was her name was it genie really Samantha Samantha yeah I know there's two of them. Okay, so whether it's Jeannie or whether it's Samantha, okay? So it's like God comes to him in a dream and says, ask me whatever you want. And he says, I would like to have wisdom so I can govern well. So, verse 10 of 1 Kings chapter 3, It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. So God said to him, because you have asked for this, and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but you have asked for yourself understanding and discern what is right. Behold, I do now, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind, so that none like you has been before you, and none like you shall arise after you. So what is the Bible telling us? The Bible says that God promised him that he would be, and this is my paraphrase, he would be the smartest man that had ever lived up to that point, and he will be the smartest man that has ever lived throughout the rest of history. Translation, the smartest guy that's ever lived is named Solomon. The smartest guy that will ever live is named Solomon. It doesn't matter about what Brainiac shows up on the scene in the days or the decades or the generations that come. The smartest man that has ever lived, the smartest man that will ever live, is named Solomon. Why? Because God said, I will give you such a such wisdom and such a mind that none before you and none after you will be equal to you. So he is made, God makes him the wisest man. And not just the wisest man. Man, but 
he said, both riches and honor. So not only does God make him the wisest man ever and ever to become, but then he makes him one of the richest men ever in that point of history. And even if you take the equivalent in today's money, he is still one of the richest men that has ever lived. So God says, what do you want? He says, I want wisdom. And God says, I will give you wisdom and I will give you all the money you could ever dream of. And you go back to the, you go forward from 1 Kings to the book of Ecclesiastes and you see as Solomon is writing Ecclesiastes, he's asking the question, what is the point of life? And he talks about that he had desires and he got everything he wanted. He wanted material possessions. He got everything he wanted. He wanted to go see the world. He got to do that. He wanted every device, every trinket, every gadget, everything. He had every single snap-on wrench that they made. He had everything. And yet he comes to the end of it and goes, that didn't fulfill me. That isn't really what I feel like is the secret of life. Because he got to the end of it. So, third king, he was the wisest man. Um, I think Levitas said he built the temple. That's in first Kings chapter 6. Um, his father had collected all of the material. And then Solomon goes about building the temple. If you look up above chapter 6 into chapter 5, it gives you all these numbers. And it gives all these numbers of what he paid for the lumber. It gives the numbers of how many people he had working on the temple. And this guy had, um, it says, uh, verse 15 of chapter 5, Solomon also had 70,000 burden bearers and 80,000 stove cutters. Besides the Solomon's 30,300 chief officers who were over the work, he had over 150,000 people on his payroll that he was using to make the material and to assemble and make the tabernacle or the temple. Not the tabernacle, it's the temple. It wasn't like he just had a crew of four or five that he ran around with. This is big. Had a lot of stuff. He built the temple. That's 1 Kings chapter 6. Then, this blows my mind. You get to 1 Kings chapter 8. And after he builds the temple, not after he, but after the temple is built, and they gathered everybody together, and they get ready to have a dedication for the temple. It says, uh, verse 10 of chapter 8, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so the priest could not stand to minister, because the cloud for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Translation, when they finished the temple, the glory of God was so thick, and so tangible in the place that the people couldn't even go inside because the cloud of the glory of the Lord kept them from going inside. Now, I mean, I don't have any way to conceive of that. I've been on some fires before when I was with the volunteer fire department and it'd be so much smoke in the building you're like, I can't go in unless I'm on air. That's just because I, I can't breathe. I can't go in there. But it's never been so thick that it was like I walked up and it was some like type of in, you know, like an invisible force shield that I couldn't get past. So the idea that the glory of God, the cloud of the glory of God was so thick they couldn't even go in is mind-blowing to me. It's fascinating. To think the glory of God was so present that the people couldn't even go in because God was just filling up the place. Then... Chapter 8, Solomon offers this prayer of dedication. And you get down to verse 62. 1 
1 Kings chapter 8, verse 62. The king and all Israel with him offered sacrifice before the Lord. So they got the temple finished. They dedicated the temple. Solomon has prayed um, a prayer of dedication over the temple. And then they decide to have sacrifices to the temple. And he sits down to put together these sacrifices. And does your Bible say how many animals he sacrificed? Anybody have it? 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Yes. Okay, you all just sit there and just like, who cares? Who is the matter? I'm just telling you. You imagine the size and the scale. You didn't have a commercial meat packing facility. You didn't have a stockyards like you'll go down and see in Oklahoma City. I mean, you have a bunch of guys out there with bed sheets wrapped around in toga with some knives made out of some flint, some very rudimentary stuff out there in the middle of the desert, and they're just hacking and slacking and oxen. I mean, that's just a that's just a full-grown bull. So they've got twenty-two thousand full-grown bulls, and then you've got a hundred and 20,000 sheep and that is just the sacrifice that you're then offering to the Lord. It's not like you're just coming up and you're just saying, here's my nickel, here's my dime, here's my dollar bill. I mean, you just think about the size and the scale. Think about if somebody says, you're going to make a sacrifice and you're going to do it on this size. Where do you even hold 120,000 sheep? I mean, think about how much space 120,000 sheep are going to take up. I mean, you're not going to put them in this room. You're not going to put them in this city block. I don't know how I don't know how many city blocks that many sheep would take place, but you can imagine amassing that many sheep and then just killing them all as a sacrifice to the Lord. The amount of money that was just sacrificed to the Lord. It's boggling to me to think about the size and the scale. It's boggling to think about the number of people he had working. It's, it's boggling to think about how much gold overlaid all throughout the temple and the gold and the gold and the gold and the gold. And then it's boggling to think about in one day or in one pass or in one span of time, 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. Makes me wonder. So if they had enough to sacrifice the 22,000 oxen, how many oxen were running around the countryside in the nation of Israel? I mean, how many you got when you got that many that you can spare, right? 120,000 sheep. I mean, can you imagine about how many you've got to spare if you've got enough that 120,000 doesn't, you know, leave you hungry for a couple of days? It's just, it's mind-boggling to me to think about the size and the scale. But what were they doing? It's a reflection upon... It's a reflection upon the riches of Solomon. And that's what the Bible is showcasing. The Bible is showcasing how wise he was. And the Bible is showcasing how rich he was. And how great his estate was. And how much money he had. Does anybody know the name Mr. Beast? Yes. Yes. Why do you know Mr. Beast? Internet. Internet. What does he do? He's like Oprah on YouTube, right? Okay, so there's like a video. Mr. Beast, I think I'm older than him. I think he's younger than me, right? But he's got these videos on YouTube. 
And like there's one video that he spends over $200,000 on fireworks. And then just lights them off in one night. I mean just... And you're thinking, what kind of guy has $200,000 to go put on fireworks to set fireworks off in a matter of three or four hours? And you're done. I mean there went $200,000, pop, boom, bang. There was a video the other day where he made a deal with a guy that if a guy could remain in this like a hundred foot circle, set a little temporary house in there, but the guy had to remain in the hundred foot circle for a hundred days. And if he did that, he would win $500,000. So the whole video is about how the guy's in there and he's dealing with isolation issues. He's dealing with long, long sickness or, or homesickness for his family and his wife. And they're, they're jacking with him, trying to get him to get out of the, get out of the circle. But you've got $500,000 to give to this old boy for camping out for 100 days inside of a circle. To me, that's just like crazy that somebody has that much disposable money. You all remember years ago when they had the State Fair of Oklahoma? Ben, you're not going to remember this. But years ago at the State Fair of Oklahoma, they would put, I think it was KJ103, the radio station, they would put the Geo Metro. Do you all, anybody remember this? Okay, you remember that? So they put the Geo Metro car along, it was along the thoroughfare, and you go to the fair, and everybody would show up, and you had to stay touching the car. And whoever the last one to be touching the car won the car. And so you would get so many hours every day to go use the restroom or to go bathe or whatever, but you had to be touching the car. So you'd have people standing outside the car holding it. They'd be laying on top of the car. They'd be inside the car. But there was always a big deal during the State Fair of Oklahoma. For years and years and years, this radio station did the promotion about who would be the last person to touch the car. And I always come by and thought, you know, it's... It's a Geo Metro. I mean, we're not talking about like a Cadillac. We're not talking about a town car. I mean, we're talking about a very economical vehicle. <laughs> but that was what they do. They'd sit there and hold that. But you know, you sit there and you think, can you imagine just having that much money to go buy a car and just give it away to somebody, right? So when you get here to First Kings, it's not a matter of going, well, that's just a number I can't even conceive. What they're trying to do and what we're seeing is this is how magnificent, this is how rich, this is how much stuff this guy had. We have no way to conceive of how much wealth he was holding. Let me put it a different way. Remember the movie McClintock? Remember the movie McClintock? No? Don't remember the movie? Oh, you need, you, we're going to have to do some education on you. Okay? What, what, about the, uh, what about the movie Texas? No? Two VHS tapes. That's how long the movie Texas was. Right? Two VHS tapes, okay? So, the, see, so the, this just breaks down. So the idea was that you would get to some of these characters and they would say, hey, we can get up in the morning and we can ride, these are cowboy movies, we could ride all day long and never get to the end of our property because their stuff was so vast and their stuff was so big. So when you get to Solomon, what we're seeing is, is we're seeing this is how rich this guy was. This was how much this guy had because he never had... He didn't have a lot. Anything he wanted, he could have. Anything he desired, he could have. He had everything you could imagine. What? I said bad. Yeah. But he had a problem. Was he happy? Do what? Was he happy? Well, so the problem you see is in 1 Kings 11. <laughs> what? 
Well, you're on to it. You're on to it because you get to 1 Kings 11 and in verse, uh, let's say the last part of verse 3 and into verse 4. Talks about he had 700 wives who were princesses. <laughs> I bet you they were. And, uh, and 300 concubines. And his wives turned his turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And then you get down through uh, uh, the rest of the verse 4. Or I'm sorry, yeah, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, verse 7, verse 8. And it starts talking about the idols that he started setting up. And the idolatry he started to practice. And the pagan worship he started to dabble in. And the... Uh, things that he started to do that were not in accordance with God's word. So then you get down to 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 9 and everything starts to unravel. From that moment when he turned away from God. See, when he was focused on God, God gave him all the wisdom, God gave him all the wealth, God gave him everything he could ask for. And then when he turned away from God and turned after pagan worship and turned after idolatry, everything started to unravel. So you get to 1 Kings chapter 11 and verse 9 and it says, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord. And then you can start reading in Scripture how God raised up an adversary, God raised up problems, God raised up uh, conflict after conflict after conflict, and then you get down to the last part of 1 Kings chapter 11, and Solomon dies. It's like everything that he was doing for the praise and the glory of God, and then he got to the point in his life, turned away from God, and everything just nosedived from there. So why do we know about Solomon? Well, he was one of the smartest guys that ever lived. Probably had the most wives of anybody that's ever lived. Probably had more money than probably anybody that's ever lived. And yet when he turned away from God, things went south. There's another thing about why we know Solomon. Because he was an author. So you mentioned, Harold, about him writing most of Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, depending on how your Bible is. So in Song of Songs or Song of Solomon, chapter 1 and verse 1, it talks about Solomon being the author. What else did Solomon write? Did you say Ecclesiastes? Okay. So you'll see that in Ecclesiastes 1.1. 1, 1, you'll see how the book of Ecclesiastes is authored by Solomon, talking about the folly of possessions and the folly of thinking you can earn contentment and happiness. What else did he write? Proverbs. Proverbs? That's right. So there's going to be a little bit of controversy as far as if he wrote all the Proverbs or if he just wrote the lion's share of them. But you get into 1 Kings chapter, or Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 1 and you get another inscription saying that he had wrote the majority if not all of the Proverbs. Proverbs 31 there's some questions about that Hezekiah wrote some of it. Um, someone else someone else wrote some of it. Do what? He wrote a lot of the Psalms. Yeah, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. So Solomon, in fact, uh, let me see here. First uh, Kings chapter four. Just so you don't think I'm making all this up. First Kings chapter four and verse thirty-two, talking about Solomon. It said he also spoke three thousand proverbs, and his songs were one thousand five. So not only was he smart, 
He was a writer. He was an author. Obviously, he was a womanizer. Um, he had that down. But uh, he had he had some money, right? He had some possessions. He had some animals. You can go in some other places and you can read about how many horses he had, how many chariots he had, how much gold he had, the ships that he had that would haul spices and precious metals all around the world. This guy was a tycoon. He had everything. Why else? What else did I miss? Why else do we know about who he is? So how many books did he write? So we, we, we ascribe to him Proverbs, Song of Solomon, and Ecclesiastes. We, we ascribe the three to him. Yes. I, I, would, I, would, I feel pretty confident that he wrote all of Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon. 99.9% of the Proverbs he wrote. There's going to be some stuff towards the end that uh, I think Hezekiah wrote one or two of the Proverbs, but the majority of it, yes, he wrote the majority of that. What did he say? Thank you for all of this. I don't think he had a job. Yeah. So how old? I don't. I didn't see how old he was when he died. It said that he ruled over Israel for forty years. So I didn't see, and maybe someone else can find it. Maybe I just overlooked it. I didn't see how old he was when he ascended to the throne. But it said that he ruled over Israel for forty years. So was it lust? I don't know if it's actually lust as much as um, I think there's a I think there's a parable about unequally yoked. You know, we 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 miss that a lot with our young people today. We look at young people and we're like, well, as long as they're happy, that's all that matters, and we don't understand that your spouse is going to have a direct influence in your spiritual health and your spiritual well-being. And we really don't lift that up like we should. Because, you know, then it's like, well, you're being legalistic or you're being hard-nosed. No, it matters because if you're aligning yourself with somebody that is spiritually unhealthy, you're, you're never going to be moving in the same direction. And so I think that there was a... I mean, he even says there in First Kings that married the women. The women came from pagan backgrounds. Their pagan background influenced him, and he began to pursue pagan worship. And even though Solomon knew from the Old Testament that God said, don't intermarry with... It wasn't necessarily an ethnic thing. It wasn't or we might consider it to be a racial thing. It wasn't that God was saying, hey, you can't marry a different race or a different ethnicity. It was a matter about your spiritual worship. So to me, today, I'm not so much concerned about the color of the person's skin. I'm more concerned about the spiritual condition of their heart. So, you know, we've gone through that generationally of being racial, discrimination um, on the basis of their, you know, their skin color. The Bible doesn't say anything about the skin color. The Bible says about who do they worship. And that's what we need to be concerned about. So, what's another reason why we know who Solomon is? Anybody else have anything? Why did he turn to God? Louder? Why did he turn to God? Well, it says in 1 Kings 11, he turned from God because of the women and the influence of the women. And that he married all these women and they had all these different cultures and different customs and different traditions. And those influenced him. The next thing you know, he started doing what? Well, he was supposed to do that smile. Well, 
Yes. Yes. I agree. So where is it where you guys are? First Kings chapter No. Yes. First Kings chapter eleven. Verse forty one. Now the rest of the Acts of Solomon and all that he did in his wisdom, are they not written in the book of Acts of Solomon? And the time that Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over Israel, over all Israel, was 40 years. And Solomon slept with his fathers, and he was buried in the city of David, his father, and Rehoboam, his son, reigned in his place. So in 1 Kings chapter 11, the last part of chapter 11 is where we see the death of Solomon, which is where I get the 40 years at. So... What do we think about some lessons? Anything stick out to you that you see from the life of Solomon that is a lesson that we could apply to our lives today? Do not be unequally yoked. Okay? That's a good one. So That's a I agree. So David gave him everything he had. David gave him the start that he had. Yes. So David had all the all the pieces assembled for the temple. So Solomon had all that stuff. And then he inherited one heck of a kingdom. David designed the temple. <laughs> David designed the temple and just gave had all the plans. He gave him all the plans. So this is what I want you to do. And then so Solomon inherited a lot. He was way loaded when he got it when he inherited it. And then God just kept multiplying it. And God kept adding to it. David, his father. So David was a great king. David had unified the kingdom. David was... I mean, you see a parable in David's life. As long as he's pursuing after God, things are going well. Life is successful. And then as soon as he decides to not do what God says to do, and then he plummets and nosedives. Is there what? That's our life Well, there is a life lesson. That's right. The danger of taking our eyes off God. The danger of the influences that often we open ourselves up to. I mean, there's a lot of things that we allow to influence us that uh, we've got to be we've got to be on guard about. I feel like for all the all the stuff that he got, I didn't read much of him giving back. Right? You don't you don't read about his generosity. Yeah, you don't read about how much of a blessing it was for other people. That's right. So when they sacrificed all the animals, they just slaughter them and leave them? Or outside? So they're going to slaughter them and use them as a burnt sacrifice? And use them as a burnt offering? And in fact, whenever... Uh, and I'm going to read to you out of Second Chronicles chapter 7. I know that's a lot of turning back and forth, back and forth. But you get over to 2 Chronicles chapter 7, which is, like I said, a parallel to what you see in the Kings. Um, it says in verse 1, as soon as, Solomon, as, as soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. So there's one point in there. They got all the sacrifices, ready to burn the sacrifices. Solomon prays to God, and it's similar to... 
Elijah at Mount Carmel. What is that? 1 Kings 16, 17, 18 in there. And when Elijah prays to God, the fire comes down and consumes the bull, consumes the altar, consumes all the water. Well, it's a similar story here. Solomon prays to God, the fire comes down, well, boom! Consumes all of the sacrifices and the people are like, ooh. He's God. He's he's God. He's God. Yeah, we're we're good. We're good. Do what? That's a heck of a wow. That is a yes. And so I don't know, but so I, I got to be careful here, Ben, because I'm not saying that they've got 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep in the pile here in Second Chronicles 7. I, I can't say for certain, like, they've got all that loaded up and the fire comes down and consumes all of that, because that would have been a lot of fire. Ooh, that would have been a hot fire. <laughs> there have been some singed eyebrows. Something. I mean, I just that's a lot of fire. So I don't know if this was the same fire or if it was a different sacrifice, but just the idea... That Solomon is praying to God, and as soon as he gets to praying, boom, here comes the fire. And verse 3, as people saw the fire, the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. And I'm like, well, yeah. You're set there, and all of a sudden you see fire come down from heaven and consume up all the sacrifices, and you're like, oh, yeah, God, yeah, yeah. We'll, 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 we'll testify to who God is. And I'm thinking, well, what else are you going to do? But there's a lesson, there's a lesson about, you know, back in 1 Kings chapter 3, we talked about how Solomon was the wisest man that ever lived. And he's also the wisest man who have ever lived and will ever live. And yet, just because he has knowledge, and just because you and I have wisdom and knowledge, that doesn't equate to holiness. And sometimes we think, Well, as long as we have enough Bible information, or as long as we go to church often enough, that will equate to holiness. And our knowledge and our wisdom do not equal holiness. It's the condition of our heart. And it's the posture of our heart that gives us a heart of holiness. And sometimes we start to think, well, I am not smart enough about the Bible. I don't know enough about the Bible. And we start to think that if we don't have knowledge and we don't have wisdom, we can't be holy. And yet I can find for you all throughout the Old Testament that you had people, simple people, people that by our standards would be uneducated people. And yet because they loved God and they feared God, God had respect and reverence for them. So your holiness is not dependent upon how much you know. And your holiness is not dependent upon how much you know. So it's not a matter of me looking at you going, well, I've been to school and so therefore I'm holier than you are. Or it's not you looking at me and going, well, I've never been to school so I can't be holy. Holiness is the position of your heart. It's not a matter of facts and figures and brains. And yet you see both people in the church today. You have some people that come in and they think because they know all the stories or they think that they, they can tell you, you can they, they can win at the Bible sword drills anytime that somebody wants to challenge them. And oh yeah, I know my Bible front and backwards, but all they are is full of arrogance and hypocrisy. And then you have some people come in and they think, I don't know enough, I couldn't do anything. And they don't understand that God isn't concerned with they know every chapter and verse. It's the holiness that God is looking for. So not only do wisdom and knowledge not equate to holiness, but our wealth and our possessions don't equate to holiness. Solomon had everything. 
Does what? Does love have it does. Your love for God. Your fear for God. I mean, Solomon had everything. He had the vacation home. He had the lake home. He had the winter home. He had the toys. He had the gadgets. He had the, the butlers. He had all the experiences. He had everything. And it wasn't the possessions or the money that made him holy. It was the condition of his heart. And you see where he is praying to God and God's answering him and the fire's coming down. God was pleased with him. This is 1 Kings chapter 3. God is pleased with him. God is blessing him. And then you see in 1 Kings chapter 11, when he turned from God, God took it all away from him. So there's another lesson there about just because you were faithful and obedient yesterday doesn't guarantee your faithfulness and obedience tomorrow. And sometimes we start to think, well, I can slack off here, or I can give up here, or God better remember what I did back then. It's a daily obedience. It's a daily faithfulness. So how does Solomon's life end? It ends in conflict. It ends in turmoil. 1 Kings chapter 11 opens up with Rehoboam, his son, ascending to the throne. Why why Rehoboam is ascending to the throne, you can go back and read this later on if you want to. Why Rehoboam is ascending to the throne, there's a guy that's been down in Egypt named Jeroboam. All the people that didn't like Solomon and didn't like Rehoboam, they go get Jeroboam and said, hey, we want you to come and be a diplomat on our behalf to go ask Rehoboam for some favors. So Jeroboam comes back. He goes to the king and he says, hey, king, you know what? We served your daddy, but your daddy, he sure was hard on us. He sure did ask a lot out of us. So you know what? If you'd be a little easier on us, you know, knock down some of the taxes, maybe give us a little more time off, we'll follow you. And Rehoboam says, well, go away for three days, come back in three days, and I'll let you know my answer. They leave. There's a whole story there. They come back, and Rehoboam is harsh, and he's rude, and he's disrespectful with Jeroboam and the people. So Jeroboam is like, peace, we're out. And all of Israel then separates from Israel and Judah. They separate. And so now you have Rehoboam and Judah in the south, and you got Jeroboam and the ten northern tribes in the north, and battles start to ensue. And then there's one place in the battle that over a hundred and over a hundred thousand Jewish people die because of the civil war that they're fighting each other. Why? Because Solomon took his eyes off God. And when Solomon turned away from God, then that brought conflict and brought turmoil and it brought upheaval in Solomon's descendants to the people that Solomon was leading to the people of God and conflict over and over and over. It wasn't a matter of the past obedience and the past faithfulness of Solomon. It was a matter of what he was doing for God today. So when you get to Solomon, you get to see a picture of how God can bless a person, but also how God can humble a person.